0: Hello and welcome, good afternoon, folks. I'm Caitlin Baggett-Davis, the Member and Programs Chair for the City Club Board of Governors. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation in our State of the Possible series with Secretary of State Shamia Fagan, with a focus today on disinformation, election integrity, and the future of our democracy. As we think about the future, let's also remember where we come from. The land we're on is native land, and it was stolen from people who lived here for thousands of years. Here in the Portland region, this land is the territory of the Molnoma, Catlamet, and Clackamas, the Tualatin, Kalapuya, and Malala, the Wasco, Cowlitz, and many other indigenous people who've known the power and beauty of the Columbia and Willamette Rivers lived here, raised their families and built communities and traditions that live on. Together, we recognize their unbreakable connections to this land, and we honor the resilience of their ancestors and the hope of future generations. For decades, some political operatives have seen an advantage in low voter turnout and sowing distrust in our civic institutions. They've pushed a narrative, election fraud is widespread. Election officials, journalists, and watchdog groups have investigated and found very few cases of fraud, yet rumors and suspicions persist. Even my dad I was talking to just a few weeks ago, a, a farmer who doesn't always vote the same way I do, had questions about fraud and elections, despite many conversations that we've had about it. In fact, in many cases, it seems as though the rumors and the questions are themselves the point. But to what end? What is gained from disinformation? What are the costs to our democracy? Today, we're joined by two election experts in Oregon's top election official to talk about what states and counties must do to ensure fair elections and how we all can better understand and fight back against election disinformation. Secretary Shamia Fagan is Oregon's 28th Secretary of State. Before holding statewide office, Secretary Fagan served as an Oregon State Senator, a member of the Oregon's House of Representatives, and a member of the David Douglas School Board. Dr. Paul Gronke is a professor of political science at Reed College. In 2005, he established the Early Voting Information Center, an organization that seeks nonpartisan, evidence-based solutions to identified problems in election administration which may or may not include the administration of early voting. Andrew Beers is a PhD candidate at the University of Washington's human-centered design and engineering program, the HCDE, where he researches misinformation, disinformation, and polarization on social media. Before I turn the screen over to our guests, I need to thank our members who are the heart of City Club and support thoughtful research, rich dialogue, and a vibrant civic life in Portland. And I also want to recognize our season sponsors, Chevron, The Standard, and Wells Fargo for making it possible for us to share our State Of series with all of you. I'd also like to thank our supporting supporting sponsors, I can say that, Kaiser Permanente and Tonkin Torp and our partners at Pamplin Media, X-Ray FM, and Merge Design. If you're unable to watch our forums online, you can listen in via X-Ray Stations, 91.1 FM and 107.1 FM. audience members, as you're listening today, if you have questions for our speakers, you can tweet at City Club using the hashtag stateofthepossible, or email your questions to questions at pdxcityclub.org. Now, it's my pleasure to welcome Secretary Shamia Fagan and Dr. Paul Gronke, who are going to kick off today's discussion.
1: Well, Caitlin, it is good to see you, my friend. The last time we saw each other was at the City Club debate for Secretary of State. And I believe you asked me what talent I would perform in Candidates Gone Wild if we ever brought that back, which, of course, was a Lizzo song in karaoke. So it's great to see you, Dr. Gronke and Andrew. Thanks for joining us today. And of course, Portland City Club members, thank you so much for having us and i very much wish this was in person i'm a huge fan of the friday forums and attended very frequently myself and i look forward to the day that we can all be sitting together over lunch and enjoying these forums in person as caitlin mentioned i'm shamia fagan i use she her pronouns and i am absolutely honored to serve as oregon's 28th secretary of state earlier this month I so I marked my first 100 days in office and it has been it's been a wild ride. And I am Oregon's 28th Secretary of State, but I am the fifth Secretary of State in the past 6 years. I'm going to let that sink in. 28 since statehood, but I am the fifth in the past 6 years due to unexpected and really tragic circumstances. And so that volume of change in leadership at the top has left our agency really struggling with lack of direction and instability. So since taking office now a little over 100 days ago, I've just been blown away by the dedicated professionals in this agency who have served Republican and Democratic secretaries of state. And despite the many challenges that they have faced, these professionals have continued to deliver truly exceptional services to Oregonians and we've hit the ground running to support them and we are well on our way to building a clear vision for the next four years and i'm excited about our work ahead and to support every aspect of this agency which of course has four public service divisions we want of course and will always prioritize secure and accessible elections We want to make sure that we're telling Oregon's whole story through our archives divisions. Caitlin, thank you for for allowing that uh, and giving that land acknowledgement at the beginning. That's an equity focus of our agency as well through our archives division, supporting our small businesses across the state in every region of the state to recover through our corporations division and championing the audits division as they work to ensure that public services that they make a real difference in the lives of people who need them the most. So in our first 100 days, we have focused essentially on three core principles. Those have been equity, stability, and security. And security is going to be essentially the topic that we're going to talk about today. But quickly with equity, we've created a new director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And after a national search, we hired this agency's first ever DEI director who starts later this month. We hired a new director of our corporations division with an expertise in business and economic equity and we have we've essentially engaged external stakeholders to build an equity advisory committee for our audits division and we launched an agency-wide evaluation of our mission and vision and values to place equity at the core of our work both internally within our team and then externally in the way that we serve oregonians second focus has, as I said, has been stability after, again, five secretaries plus two acting secretaries and five deputy secretaries in just six years. This agency was in need of stability in executive leadership. So we have built a diverse and experienced team in the executive office who are hard at work, and they are rebuilding trust between the executive office and the agency's seven divisions, four of which directly serve Oregonians. We were in regular meetings with oregon's 36 county clerks i finally had a chance to take my first visit to wasco county last week to visit my hometown's county clerk which is fantastic and we're going to get out to all 36 county clerks and we want to make sure what do they need from the elections division to continue to serve oregonians and deliver those secure elections that they have been doing for so many years and we launched a nationwide search for a new elections Director. And actually, just made an offer last week to our finalists. And we brought the County Clerks Association in from the beginning to the end of that interview process so that they have buy in for our new elections director. And finally, security, which is going to be really the core of our topic today. We obviously are also focused in the agency on cybersecurity as a top priority. I personally was able to meet with Chris Krebs, who's formerly with the Department of Homeland Security, and multiple other cybersecurity experts and teams. We hired a new director of our information services division who is focused on cybersecurity. And just last week, we began negotiating with the winning bidder to replace our online central voter registration system or OCVR, which has been identified as our biggest cyber vulnerability. But in addition to cybersecurity, really the biggest security threat that our elections face is misinformation and disinformation. As uh, many folks, not just me have stated, it's, not, it's harder to actually hack an election system than to just make people believe there was insecurity or fraud in the election system. And that's what we're really battling here today. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Quickly, uh, before we turn to our topic, I want to, of course, highlight the upcoming special district elections, which are going to decide who sit on our school boards, funding through bond measures, representation on rural water and fire districts, among others. So the election is Tuesday, May 18th. And the last day to register to vote is this week. Uh, it's actually today. Oh my gosh, today, April 27th, uh, Tuesday, April 27th. so voters will begin receiving ballots. They'll be mailed out tomorrow. So if you're not yet registered to vote or if your voter registration is not updated, please do that by today at oregonvotes.org. And on a personal note, Caitlin, I'm very nostalgic about this year's special election uh, districts because it's the 10 year anniversary of my first time on a ballot. I was elected to the David Douglas School Board in May of 2011, and it's been just an honor, an extraordinary honor, to spend the past 10 years in public service to this state that I love so much. So because I care so much about this state and what Oregon has given to me, I'm honored to serve. And the state of our vote, which is your topic today, is one of the most critical issues of our time and certainly a priority, a top priority for this agency. And the word unprecedented has been thrown around a lot this year. A global pandemic, devastating historic wildfires, uh, one of the most divisive elections of our lifetime. Recently, a, a winter storm in Oregon that knocked out power. This is unlike anything we've experienced, at least in my lifetime, and I know everybody on this call and this, this event's lifetime. And so... One obvious area of importance for us is to rebuilding that trust and that work is ahead of us. And one thing we wanna be clear starting out today, and Dr. Gronke is gonna have some great results for you, is that there is absolutely no reason to doubt the security of the elections of a 2020 election. And thank you, Caitlin, in your opening remarks for just addressing that head on. Several Trump administration officials, including Attorney General Bill Barr to Chris Krebs, and the government, um, the head of the government agency on monitoring cybersecurity, they called 2020 the most secure election in our history. Recounts, audits, and numerous lawsuits further verified the election results in 2020. And while Oregon has fared better than most of the nation, we are not immune, as Dr. Gronke is about to show you, to the challenges of misinformation and mistrust in our elections. So. Despite becoming the nation's first all-vote-by-mail state over 20 years ago, where Republicans and Democrats alike have been elected and served under that system, of course, Democratic and Republican Secretaries of State. Recent research by the Early Voting Information Center at Reed College illustrates a picture of voter confidence in Oregon that, while largely positive, is in need of some work. And we are committed to that work at the Secretary of State's office. So last year, Secretary Clarno contracted with Dr. Paul Gronke and his team at Reed College to explore voter confidence in elections and answer some key questions. So, Dr. Gronke, thank you for joining me here today and give us the skinny. What did your election results find?
2: Well, thank you, uh, Madam Secretary, and thanks uh, for the opportunity, Caitlin, to speak to the City Club today. I'm gonna provide an overview of um, some of our results um, on the first slide when it appears at some point. Um, there'll be a, a, a web address that will appear if people wanna dig deep into um, the surveys that we conducted. The surveys were conducted, thank you. The surveys were conducted, uh, we actually did a baseline survey um, it, as a part of the HMM Research and thanks to John Horvick, who's been a, a wonderful partner and uh, gave us some good advice, um, even Though in some, um, I would say we're not competitors, we're in this effort to to try to improve and how our think about their elections. Information on the website is provided here through the process of the results collected uh, starting back in June of uh, 2019, excuse me, and then a series of surveys that were conducted after the primary uh, in September, and then we did a pre post survey with the same uh, respondents um in october and then november elections so if you move to the next slide so i want to start with the good news the good news is that vote by mail is resilient in oregon um, what we mean by resilient here is it's it's um survivable uh it you know is responsive to things like wildfires uh, there's opportunities to continue to cast a safe and secure ballot um, and in the pandemic um, we saw that oregonians overwhelmingly expressed no concerns about the safety and security of casting um their ballot can you go to the next slide, please? So uh, yeah, I hit a click here. So I wanna highlight a few things here quickly and then go to a, more, a better visual uh, representation of what we have here. So yeah, hit hit the next slide. It should a little, yeah, there we go. So what I wanna show you here is the change. These are the same uh, citizens who cast a ballot we interviewed before and after the election. And this is the change in the level of voter confidence that they expressed a little bit before election, a little bit after. So the only impact here on the change in uh, opinion here is the experience of casting a ballot and the rhetoric that they heard from political leaders. Um, So what you see here is that among Democrats, there was a dramatic increase in the level of confidence that they expressed in the integrity of their ballot. And if you'll click again, please. And what you're going to see, unfortunately, here is a decline, quite dramatic decline among Republicans, both in the expressed integrity of their own ballot and, and a quite substantial decline um, in the uh, trust that Republicans in Oregon uh, expressed in the uh, integrity of the ballot count nationwide. If you click the next slide please. So this is another a visual display um, and so it shows you so in the upper left-hand corner you could see there that kind of Democrat increase really starting to maximize out here the number of Democrats in Oregon have strong levels of confidence and compare that to the lower right hand corner where you have the real collapse here among Republicans in Oregon. Now, I can say when we produced some results for the Secretary's office um, in uh, October, um, we, we wrote a sort of a good news report. At that point, it appeared that both Democrats and Republicans in Oregon were resisting some of the negative rhetoric that we were hearing about the integrity of the vote by mail system. Unfortunately, um, that got overwhelmed by national messaging by some of the leaders that Secretary uh, Fagan referred to, who while they said after the election it was safe and secure, um, just prior to your election, were unfortunately promoting misinformation and false facts about the security of vote by mail um, and frankly, about many of our election systems nationwide. Can you click the next slide, please? So this is the same sort of um, comparison here. So I'd draw your eyes to is the the, um, height of those uh, red bars at the top part of the slide is um, the uh, uh, perceptions of the frequency of various types of voter fraud in Oregon and the lower portions the same respondents asking about voter fraud nationwide the good news is that Oregonians have higher levels of faith they believe there's less voter fraud in Oregon the bad news once again is the partisan gap the Democrats um, virtually no Democrats believe there's any fraud in the Oregon system that's the good news but Republicans Uh, quite high percentages believe there's a variety of of types of voter fraud occurring in our state. Next slide please. So um, again there's going to be two, why don't we we do click twice here so we can just highlight this. So I just want to show here if, uh, and this sort of leads into Andrew's presentation to follow up. So let's say we want to address some of these sources of misinformation. Where do we go? Um, How do we seek out? We've got another complexity here um, in our world today and at Oregon that is older generations um, they rely primarily on traditional news sources. Uh, they re- rely on television news, print media. Younger, uh, younger cohorts, younger generations have a much more diverse set of information sources they draw upon. So if you click one more time, um, so you see the gap here, but so we have the voters pamphlet at the top, younger generations are using the voter pamphlet, but to a much lower degree uh, than older generations. And then social media is a much more, um, common use of media usage information usage about the campaign among the younger generations. So leaders such as, uh, Secretary Fagan, uh, county clerks have to think hard about this. How do they reach out to their voters? If you use only one information source, you're going to miss one group. And you've got to worry about these different groups and the different information and kind of have a broad strategy. and listen this is hard for county clerks. Um, they weren't trained to be social media specialists and, and they had to learn very quickly. okay if you click one more time please. So again, any questions or comments about um, the work that we're doing uh, you feel free to email me. There's more information at our project webpage. I do want to say one thing in closing both in Oregon and nationwide there are a lot of efforts going on to try to address. Uh, The outcomes and after effects of the 2020 election, Uh, Washington is one of the leaders in the field. Um, So there's a number of projects going on. There is attention to these problems, um, but these problems are ongoing. There's something we really are going to have to pay attention to. Democracy is in peril right now, um, and it's going to be a lot of work uh, to resuscitate it. So that's the end of my slides. Secretary, I don't know if you have any questions for me or hand off to Andrew. Thanks.
1: Well, thank you, Professor Gronke, and I hope you're going to stick around to the end in case we have questions, and or in, in case City Club members have questions. I, we have lots of questions, but I want to make sure that we have a chance to get to Andrew as well, and then we'll have time at, with these engaged City Club members for questions. And, and as you noted, as you alluded to, as I alluded to, even as, as Caitlin alluded to at the very beginning, a major contributor to the lack of confidence within our election systems both here in Oregon and across the country is the growing amount of misinformation and disinformation, and just how extraordinarily easy easily it spreads. It's a click of a button to retweet something. It's the click of a button to, you know, share something on social media, and um, you know what is to blame for such distrust and the widely accepted consensus among academics, of course, as you know, Professor Gronke, uh, law enforcement, and election officials clearly identifies the culprit, um which is this misinformation and disinformation. And so, you know, simply put an echo chamber in social media and other media outlets that are not kind of a credible mainstream media outlets that don't always get every fact right, but are trying to get every fact right, that are not trying to spread misinformation and disinformation, and who are willing to issue corrections when they get something wrong. We're talking about other media outlets um, that don't, they don't care if they spread misinformation. And so for the rest of our discussion and to add to it, I'd like to introduce Andrew Beers, who is a PhD student and researcher at the University of Washington's Nonpartisan Center for the Informed Public. Andrew, go Ducks, go beeves, go Vikings. Um, But Andrew was among a coalition of individuals, organizations, and really academic institutions who took a nonpartisan look at misinformation and disinformation during and after the 2020 election. So Andrew, welcome. And what did your research find? I think you're on mute. Has to happen to somebody every time.
3: um, Well, thank you for having me, Secretary Fagan, um, and thank you for the introduction. I'll jump right into it. Um, So the Election Integrity Partnership, which I worked with during and after the 2020 election season, continuously monitored information across several social media platforms in multiple languages during the election, the explicit goal was providing updates regarding the spread election-related misinformation, and later a post hoc analysis of how misinformation actually spread. Um, we had a large team constantly recording and taking in reports of incidents. Um, we connected with social media platforms um, to give them recommendations and also wrote public-facing blog posts. Um, and we found many rumors who spread was damaging not only because they directly diminished the faith in the election, but also because they would later turn up in lawsuits um, launched to undermine the election, or that they would later fuel famously the January insurrection against the Capitol, um, which is to say that the misinformation had effects. I mean It was not just simply a rumor. Um, but broadly, what we found is that, Um, As we were monitoring, we found a potent combination between organic and more coordinated behavior online that led to the spread of this election-based misinformation. Um, Misinformation was organic in that it exploited local ambiguities in the election processes, genuine confusions that people have, a rumor gone awry. Um, If I could pull up the slides, um, oh, they're already up there. Um, Here is one example of that um, that was extremely prominent during the election, what we call Sharpie Gate was a rumor that some people filled out their ballots with Sharpies. This mostly focused around Arizona, but then moved to other states and had their ballots canceled because of this. There's a lot of ambiguity on the voting website, where if you voted in person instead of, um, I believe, by mail, the voting website would say that your mail-in ballot was canceled, when really all that they meant is that you voted in person. But many people, you know, heard about the Sharpie thing, they went online, they saw that their ballot was cancelled, and they went to social media and they said, oh my gosh, what is going on? Um, there's uh, And that led to misinformation, loss of faith in the election results. Now if you can move to the next slide. Um, there are other things that are more sort of almost external rumors, but this is an image of a viral tweet of... What appear to be, but are not, um, mail in ballots tossed in the dumpster. So there's sort of a narrative building here. Somebody's trying to get rid of votes that they don't like. In reality, this is a photo from 2018. They're not mail in ballots, they're empty envelopes um, associated with mail in ballots. No ballots were found there. Um, But what this uh, tweet shows in particular, if I could go to the next slide, um, is that although, as we see here, the, this was in Sonoma County. Um, the Sonoma County was quick to provide a fact check of this tweet. Um, it had gone viral, you know, relatively and gone in front of an audience of tens of thousands of people. And so, I want to go on in the next slide to why that actually happened. What you see here is a visualization that we made, at the Election Integrity Partnership, of influential accounts and this is um, the sort of partner to the organic local based misinformation is what starts out as a rumor that may not have much spread is routed through one of these nodes each one of these nodes represents an influential person like um, current president joe biden former president donald trump and their account on twitter it could also be a news agency or just a popular user but once one of these users um, amplifies local misinformation the power and effect of that misinformation spreads much further, um, and so some of these um, some of these powerful influencers had a tendency to amplify misinformation more so than others. Famously, former President Donald Trump, now banned from Twitter, is an obvious example of an account that tweeted much misleading misinformation and was eventually banned for, not all, for a combination of misinformation and inciting violence during the insurrection. However, there were also other accounts. Um, these included the Twitter accounts of Trump's adult sons, um, several right-wing media accounts, prominent QAnon accounts. Um, and other right-wing influencers online. You may notice that a lot of the examples of these um, amplifying what some people call super-spreaders of misinformation that we've identified are associated with the American right-wing. And I want to stress that the Election Integrity Partnership, our organization, is a nonpartisan organization. We did observe incidents of left-wing misinformation, too. I remember a particular false rumor that Ivanka Trump had bought patents on jeans and was rigging them. But the reality is, from the data that we collected, we found that misinformation on social media by influencers was an ideologically asymmetric phenomenon. Um, More prominent on the right wing than the left wing. Many of these right wing influencers were not removed from Twitter for almost the full duration of the election, despite repeatedly spreading different incidents of misinformation. And although some were removed after the January insurrection, many are still active. They are likely to continue to be point sources of misinformation in future elections. And so that concludes the slides I have here. I don't want to sort of blather on and on so I can toss it off for any questions also.
1: Well, thank you, Andrew. And I think if I could sum up your presentation in uh, a phrase, it would be that old adage that the, the a lie makes itself around the world before the truth even gets up in the morning or even puts its pants on or whatever the iteration of the, of the event is. But the reality is that it's incredibly difficult, particularly, as you mentioned, for a lot of local elections officials who are trying to just actually do the work of making sure that ballots are you know accurately counted collecting using these extraordinary systems at least that we have here in Oregon of you know unique barcode tracking and signature verification to do the actual work they're not trained nor even having the bandwidth to also then have to be you know super influencers on twitter and social media to combat these pieces of misinformation that that already make themselves around the world and one Place that I want to come from is just it, it starts from a place of empathy. A lot of the folks who are being, who are incidentally spreading this information are targets of people who are seeking to do harm. They're not trying to do it, right? If they get all this information that, oh, their ballot might be canceled, then all of a sudden seeing something that looks unusual or that they maybe have seen a dozen times before but never paid attention to previously, it suddenly looks really scary. And so that's one of the things that I, that I come from as Oregon's Chief Elections Officer. I am deeply concerned from a place of empathy for every Oregonian, Republicans, Democrats, Green Party, Constitution, Independent Party, non-affiliated voters, everybody. I want us to have faith in our elections because they are safe and secure. And the 36 county clerks across our state are doing incredible nonpartisan work to just get it right. And they do get it right. I also recognize in a moment of self-reflection that as a Democratic Secretary of State, I'm not always the best messenger for every audience. And uh, for particularly for some of the Republicans um, that have that lack of voter confidence that Dr. Gronke pointed out. So I'd be curious to hear from both of you about what are some helpful ways that, that you would recommend that Oregon, through our office or through the county clerks or partnering with nonpartisan civic organizations really help combat this misinformation what kind of recommendations would you have for us
3: maybe i can take the uh, first one and then i'll pass it off to paul um so we released a report the election integrity partnership it's called the long fuse you can download it online we give a few recommendations i want to bring up that sharpie gate example again where people filled out their ballots with sharpies and then checked online and it said their ballot was cancelled and that was as you said you know you can empathize with how upsetting that may be given what you're hearing online i think um, sort of one responsibility that states can have is to really sort of test their systems over and over again for at every point when you register to vote where and when you're actually voting, what happens if you wanna know, You know, was your vote properly cast if you check online? Are those words concerning? Um, one of the things about misinformation is that the same stories happen over and over again. So it's not exactly going to be something that catches you off guard. People will say that, like, oh, I filled out my ballot the wrong way and now I think it's canceled. And you want to have a message prepared when people bring that up and say, actually, you can check here online and it says that your ballot was canceled. Or you can call this number or there will be an audit, Um, something that gives people a little faith. And committing and having this come from sort of a single authoritative source where people know to turn to um, can really also help. It's one that's updated regularly. And again, people understand that. Um, And again, sort of battle-tested against all the different examples of misinformation that happened in previous elections, particularly the 2020 US election, presidential election has given us a lot of examples. Um, And then I will also just add one point is that um, you as a state want to prepare for misinformation, but the unfortunate reality is that social media platforms have a lot of control over the spread of misinformation during our elections our partnership um, often interfaced with the platforms to ask them to sort of highlight misleading content for them but as a state you can also highlight certain accounts users or messages that are going um, viral and undermining the legitimacy of these elections communicate with the platforms and say could you please moderate this content um, Platforms respond to their stakeholders and they need to know that you are being affected by the outcomes of their choices, something that they did not take action on as much as some people may have liked during the 2020 U.S. election. Well, I'll yeah, thanks, uh,
2: Madam Secretary. I'll, I'll say a couple things. I mean, you know, one example that really brought this home to me um, is Shauna Dozer, who is um, a young election official in Clayton County, Georgia. And like many people, I had the television on on Wednesday night um, when it was very clear that Georgia was going to become one of the key states. And it was uh, midnight our time, 3, 3 a.m., Georgia time. And Shauna was on CNN. Now, Shauna was not trained to be on CNN. And right after that, she was on BBC. And suddenly, here is this um, young African-American official who was, uh, I believe, running her second presidential election. And the world was focusing on her now. Shauna did a wonderful job. Um, I commended her then, we did, our community got behind her and started to support her. But believe me, uh, there were some people that were sending messages that were much less supportive. And so Shauna and her staff, there were pictures of her staff at that point, they were sleeping in their cars, they were working all night. So we need coverage like that. Um, But the information that I would say to the clerks and to your office um, is really not from me, but it's from other experts in the field. Um, Noah Pretz, who was an election official in Cook County uh, and then worked for CISA, which is the division of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, what, what Noah will say and what I agree with is transparency is your friend. Transparency is a shield. So be transparent, release your results, try to make the processes as transparent and visible as possible so you can undermine any attempts to um, sow distrust. The second thing that Noah suggested on a podcast recently I listened to is is reach out to the minority party in your district, right? The minority party. Make them your partners and make sure that they are your allies because local officials know the local area better than anyone, even perhaps than the Secretary of State. (laughs) So, right, so that kind of localized partnership. The third thing I'll say is the Center for Tech and Civic Life is rolling out toolbox for elections officials now they did a lot of great work last year they're continuing to do that good work so look for allies out there um, like the ctcl like others who are trying to work to strengthen both state and local officials but andrew uh said it very effectively it is hard to counter when you've got somebody you know wielding that megaphone with 30 million followers and and that's just tough um so hopefully elected officials can stop turning to the rules of the game fighting over the rules As I've said to people, things like automatic voter registration, I'm a huge, huge advocate of. Elections are about getting people to the polls, not keeping them off the rolls. Let's keep that in mind. Everybody on the rolls is good for everyone. It's good for both political parties. It's for all for political parties. Competition should be about getting people to the ballot box, not keeping them away from it.
1: I like that a lot. And I really appreciate both of your emphasis on transparency, kind of peeling back the curtain. And I just wanna give a shout out to a Girl Scout troop in Wasco County. And we have it on our social media page. They just did a basically a whole video of, you know, the anatomy of a ballot, like kind of what happens with this vote by mail system. And and I'm obviously very proud Wasco County is my home county, but this Girl Scout troop just sat down and did it again. These are these are children that were saying, hey, it's actually not that complicated. Let us walk you through how this happens. And I know that Caitlin wants to to get us to some questions. So as, as you're gathering the questions, Caitlin, I'll just, you know, I'll take this opportunity to at least note one of the most common Pieces of misinformation that we saw in Oregon and that we could see over and over again is somebody would go on social media and say, I can prove election fraud because my roommate no longer lives here, but look, their ballot just came in the mail. And to that we say, well, no, that's not voter fraud anymore, that if a credit card application came to them, it's not credit card fraud for that application to come. It'll be fraud for somebody to turn in that ballot for them and sign it just like it would be fraud for somebody to fill out someone else's credit card application. But the ballot arriving is just Oregon's system of saying, hey, if you're you're registered as an active voter, you're gonna receive a ballot. If you don't turn it in, of course that vote is not gonna count. Or if you did register somewhere else, then you will be voting there. We have a unique barcode tracking system that only allows any Oregon voter to hand in one ballot per election. Um, and so that's just a common one that people hear. And then they say, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense. But it's spooky to people when they see somebody online saying, you know, here's a ballot that came to my my roommate who doesn't live here or hasn't lived here in a year. And so there's there's bits of misinformation that are unique to Oregon. There's some that are, of course, everywhere. And of course, as Vote by Mail had its unexpected national debut in 2020. Uh, We got to see little bits of misinformation about vote by mail across the country, but we know that it works. And even the Conservative Heritage Foundation did an audit of the Oregon vote by mail system a few years ago, they looked at it for the 20 year history of it. And they found 14 instances of voter fraud out of 15 million ballots. So literally less than one in a million. So we know it's secure. The facts show it's secure. Our job is to actually make sure those facts get to Oregonians from a credible source who they trust. And we're making that a priority in our agency. Caitlin, what do you got for us? I think you're still muted. We've been doing this all spring. Uh,
0: Hi everybody. This is a great conversation. Thank you for being here. For those who are just tuning in, I'm Caitlin Baggett Davis. I'm the program's chair for City Club of Portland, and I'll be moderating our Q&A today with our guests, Secretary of State Shamiya Fagan, Andrew Beers, and Dr. Paul Gronke. Secretary Fagan, um, I do want to thank you for joining us today and for remembering your promise to perform Lizzo karaoke um, at our at our last live event um, this last spring at the Re- at Revolution Hall. Um, sadly, there's not time today for live uh, for, for karaoke, but um, I'm banking on it for the future. Before we go to our audience Q and I want to take a moment to reflect on um, this past year for City Club events. Since that last live event, more than twenty-six thousand people have watched City Club virtually, including two membership research votes to approve City Club's position and reform and Portland's starter reform process. Twenty-six thousand people. Imagine the karaoke concert we could have if we could all be in person. Today's event is the last in our State of the Possible series and a lot of people helped make the magic happen and I want to take just a minute to thank them before we go to Q&A. David, Chase, Miranda with X-Ray, John and Dana with Pamplin Media, which by the way, if you all haven't, you should check out the New City Club of Portland page on the Portland Tribune news site. You can find all of the op-eds written by our State of the Possible guests this spring and news coverage of City Club's programs. Um, And I'm just so, so grateful to our whole programs team, Rebecca, Samantha, Jill, Leslie, Julie, Colin, Dan, Bobby, and our inspiring interpreters, CM and Andrew. And of course, thinking back to this spring, right as we were going from live to virtual, it could not have happened without our incredible staff team who moved heaven and earth to pivot to virtual at that time, Julia, Stacy, and Aaron thank you thank you thank you the time energy and engagement of our community in making city club work it is just it's such an expression of love for our city and for participatory democracy over the next few months city club will begin a conversation with our members and our larger community about how we can begin to reopen and that conversation will be deeper than just the logistics of gathering again in person You know, it's been a year, a year in which we've all had reason to reflect on our community and our priorities and about what it means to love our city and what it looks like to serve our democracy. There'll be more on that work on reopening soon. But for now, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsors and members and then dive into this long list of questions from our audience. All right, we're back. I'm going to kick us off with City Club's question, which has been our question all winter. Shamia, Secretary Fagan, what does our hopeful future look like to you? When you imagine our elections and political community in, say, 20 years, in 2041, what is the future? What's the future that you hope for?
1: In Oregon, I'll always be hoping for higher voter participation, because when more people turn out and more people vote, then our representation here in Oregon will better reflect the needs of all Oregonians. And so I am very happy that at least the current state of the legislature, for example, is uh, there are more people of color representing Oregon right now than at any time in Oregon's history, but it's still not enough. So in 2041, I'd love to see representation in Oregon that actually reflects the people of Oregon. And just this last, I feel like it was last month, I believe, or earlier this month, that with the appointment of Representative Andrea Valderrama, that there is a majority women for the first time in the Oregon House of Representatives. And so my hope for Oregon in 2041 would be a system where our our leaders, our political leaders, our civic leaders across the state reflect the diversity of our incredible state. And through that representation, better serve the needs of all Oregonians. And most importantly, that all Oregonians, regardless of political ideology, actually trust that the folks that are representing them and doing that work have their best interest at heart and can trust the decisions that they make.
0: That is a beautiful vision for the future. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about moving from the moment that we're in right now and the struggles we have with disinformation and trust. What are some steps that get us? Are there two or three things in your uh, in your plan of action that, that you think drive that forward?
1: As I noted earlier, security is not only a top focus for the first 100 days, it is a top priority for this agency uh, before I came on and long after I am gone, it will be a top priority. And so we have to recognize the changing nature of security is not, as I noted, not just about a fear of folks hacking into computer systems, but we've already been talking about today, how much easier it is just to spread misinformation about elections. And so one thing that we are focused on that I think has been underlying this discussion here today is how difficult it is for clerks for the Secretary of State's office, for good nonpartisan civic organizations like both Andrew and Dr. Gronke are a part of, to spread the accurate information. Our goal is through our civic education arm of this agency to arm Oregonians ourselves with the ability to think like fact checkers, to have, you know, when we see a tweet on Twitter and say, huh, even if I want that to be true, what's the source of that information? Is it cited? Let me pop over to that source really quick and make sure that this meme or this GIF or this picture actually represents what that source says it does. What do I know about this source? Have I ever read from this place before? You know, who are their backers? You know, what have they said in the past of articles, right? How do we really equip Oregonians themselves with that new form of civic education as we see it to be their own front line against spreading misinformation whether it's about elections or public health or the reputation of a certain person in the community whatever it is how do we help Oregonians and so focused the focus of the secretary of state's office in the past and appropriately so because we obviously this is a new era that we're coming into has been on civic education for primarily elementary and middle and high school students. And we will never let up on that focus. We have done a a lot of work, kid governor inauguration to continue that work. And we're committed to that. We just think it can't stop there we think that we also need to say that you know civic education can't stop when our when our students graduate from high school because the reality is i'm more likely to get accidental misinformation from my 72-year-old aunt than i am from my middle school niece because my niece has grown up around the fact that like oh just because something looks credible doesn't mean it is my aunt grew up in an era where when it had kind of you know newspaper looking font at the top of a web page, it probably was a credible newspaper. So she'll send me stuff sometime really alarmed. So we need to really help everybody, every Oregonian be their own front line against combating misinformation by teaching us all to think like fact checkers. Mm-hmm. Super interesting.
0: I can definitely say that my my oldest teenager in high school has gotten classes that are focused on how to interpret media. There is somebody chopping a tree down outside my house And I don't know if it's audible to everybody else, but (laughs) I'm going to put myself on mute after I ask this next audience question. Um, So a question comes in, um, we have a reader here. In an interview in the New York Times Magazine on Sunday, Neil deGrasse Tyson said, we've lost confidence in our civic entities. That's a strong destabilizing force. And some of that spilled over into the scientific community it seems like disinformation is everywhere. Vaccines, climate change, elections, HR, sports. The question from our audience member is, what came first, the distrust or the disinformation? And does and does that distinction matter for
1: healing us? It's a big well, question for is, you. It's a fantastic <laughs> question. And I actually would love to hear Andrew and Dr. Gronke weigh in on that. I will just, you mentioned Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, I got ma- a masterclass subscription for Christmas and I have been loving it. And he teaches a masterclass on the scientific method. And, and he said, and this is ex- exactly pertinent to, to this viewer's question. He boiled the scientific method down to this, which I love. He said, doing whatever it takes to not be fooled into believing that something is true that isn't or that something that isn't true is doing whatever it takes, that's the scientific method as Neil deGrasse Tyson boils it down. And so, you know, the chicken or the egg question of what came first, distrust or misinformation, I think it's probably an, an academic question that folks could argue one or the other. I think at least when it comes to elections, I think um, it would, in my view, at least uh, on a plain line would be the misinformation. It was kind of, there, there may have been distrust before, but if people that even disagreed or didn't like the outcome of election said, hey, you know, I lost fair and square or, uh, you know this this information actually is credible from this local elections official. I don't think we would have the mass amount, kind of the skyrocketing mistrust that we have right now. But again, I think it's a question that somebody could probably argue um, that the chicken came first as opposed to the egg. So I'd be happy to hear what Andrew or Dr. Gronke had to say about that as well.
0: Chase, can we oh. get? Yeah, there we go.
3: Sure. Um, I can just uh, chime in. I think this is not so much a sort of research outcome as much as a personal opinion. That's the same as the chicken and the egg. I could not say when distrust or disinformation started, both of them are mutually reinforcing. If you have less trust in an institution, you're more likely to believe um, and you have disinformation from another institution that suggests that institution's lying. Um, and your belief in that disinformation will probably further reduce your trust. And so these are sort of mutually reinforcing forces that have probably been spinning out for quite a long time. And then I also just want to bring up one thing you mentioned about sort of distrusting the scientific method. I think actually, many um, people who believe misinformation are actually do trust the scientific method and very logical ways of thinking, it's the institutions that they turn to um, they're not being trusted. You ask somebody who is opposed, uh, who believes things about the vaccine, which are not true, they will often cite scientific papers. During the election, um, people made statistical arguments for why the vote count must be wrong. Um, the process, people are still thinking critically and logically, but it's the trust in the institutions and the information sources that they put in, which has been turned awry.
0: Excellent. We have another question here. It's a shorter one. Um, They ask, I'd be curious to know how much election disinformation is going on in Oregon and whether it matters that much here.
1: This one I feel like is perfectly prime for Dr. Gronke because that was really what their their research really looked at. So Dr. Gronke?
2: Yeah. By the way, on the previous one, I'd have to say distrust first. You know, Trust and confidence in institutions in this country has really been declining since the 70s. Um, You know, the end of the Vietnam War, the way it ended in the Nixon administration resignation. What has happened really since 2000 has been this has bled over into elections. And the elections themselves have become a area, the election rules themselves have become a point of contention. And then the disinformation has overlaid that. So that, you know, it's my perspective on studying this for, far too long, <laughs> let's just say that, but you know, this is not a recent phenomenon, um, but yeah, the way they're mashing together, the way Andrew describes it, that's exactly right. Uh, how much in Oregon, that's I. That's hard to answer because a lot of the information sources are, you know, Donald Trump said a lot of things that were wrong, but the thing about, a, you know, a, a, a somebody sitting in their basement in Ukraine, and we do know, for example, political science research that a fair amount of the disinformation campaigns in 2016 came out of Macedonia, that there was a kind of misinformation factory that was being supplied out of Macedonia. Uh, Yeah, how much in Oregon? I don't think I've tracked that, you know, as I said, there appeared to be a fair amount of resistance um, among across in Oregon until right at the end of the election and just got overwhelmed. I think that the consistency of the messaging from national figures about the threats of voting by mail, the threats to voting by mail, just sort of overwhelmed the ability of clerks and other trusted validators to try to counter that information. So um, yeah, I don't know if it's Oregon so much as the information that Oregonians, again, as Andrew said, the information that Oregonians are consuming um, and uh, the difficulty It's hard, there aren't single valid sources anymore, right? People have all the broad set of sources. So it's out there in Oregon, Uh, it's out there, I guess I'll just say, it's out there, it's everywhere. It's sort of all around us. Sorry, not a great answer or not an optimistic answer.
1: And I know that our County clerks would would tell you if asked that they received just more phone calls. And they said that when I've spoken with them, they said the thing that was different this year wasn't just the volume of calls. Is that when we just flat out told people exactly, you know, what the information was, answer their question directly to to Dr. Gronke's point, they just didn't believe. Even their local county clerks. And we are seeing there was a research that came out just a couple weeks ago in an article showing an absolute like, just you know, really. Um, dissatisfaction and amongst local elections officials and how you know, their folks that are going to want to leave this industry because as we know these are folks that just these are not they want to be on the star of the show uh, type folks these are folks that just are hardworking. they just get it done they just count the ballots they don't affect the outcome they just share the outcome and the distrust that they face throughout across the whole country but even here in Oregon uh, he just allowed a lot of folks to say, you know, this might not be, might not be the career for me. So we're facing really a crisis of the folks that want to do that local elections work as it becomes such a, a challenging pe- way for people just to do really honorable public service.
0: I'm gonna to try to squeeze in one last question. I know that we're at time, but I think this is such a good one. Uh, the, the person asks, your presentations focused on misinformation and disinformation, but didn't go much into the facts themselves. They write, uh, I've heard that point zero 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 three percent of ballots may be ineligible or fraudulent, which could be compared with, for example, the US eligible voters who are prevented from voting because they don't have access to a photo ID, which according to an article in the Washington Post is close to 11%. The questioner wants to know if Secretary Fagan what information does your office use to understand the integrity of our elections and election participation? That'll be our last question for today.
1: Sure, well, quickly, since I know we're at time, we, of course, do auditing. And again, this is a a fragmented, it's 36 county clerks that actually are running this, independently elected nonpartisan county clerks who are actually running the elections. But of course, there's post-election auditing done, uh, risk-limiting auditing to make sure that we verify those results. and and to your questioner's point, Caitlin, yes. I mean, you can point zero zero zero, any set of numbers. you you fear you hear different, but in the end, it's extraordinarily de minimis amount of fraud, as I mentioned you know, the Conservative Heritage Foundation, you know, 15 million ballots, they found 14 instances of voter fraud. Former Secretary of State Dennis Richardson, a Republican, uh, the first, the very first acts that he did in office was to push back on, the Republican Secretary of State pushed back on a Republican president who was claiming that dead people had voted in Oregon and all these other things. He said, nope, we, have, we really do not have a fraud problem in Oregon. And so this is not a partisan issue. It is the fact that Republican and Democratic Secretaries of State have said that. But to your questioner's real point, this false facts and misinformation and disinformation are now being used across the country, in Georgia and Texas and other places to introduce legislation to further restrict the right to vote, which is actually going to make it much more difficult for people to vote, on this misinformation about a very outsized fear of voter fraud that simply doesn't exist. And that is a real tragedy here. And we're pushing back in on that, not only here in Oregon, of course, but we're also speaking out and signing on to a lot of bipartisan letters to push back across the country.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Secretary Fagan, Dr. Paul Gronke, Andrew Beers, really appreciate having all of you here with us today. And for the final event of our State of the Possible series, that's a wrap. Thank you, everybody. Have a great week.
2: Thank you.